You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. You shall therefore love Yahweh your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today, since I am not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of Yahweh your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm, his signs, and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh the king of Egypt and to all his land and what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how Yahweh has destroyed them to this day, and what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of Yahweh that he did. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that Yahweh swore to your fathers to give to them, and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of, it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it, like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that Yahweh your God cares for. The eyes of Yahweh your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love Yahweh your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods, and worship them. Then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that Yahweh is giving you. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that Yahweh swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving Yahweh your God, walking in all his ways, 
and holding fast to him, then Yahweh will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon, and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. Yahweh your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of Yahweh your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of Yahweh your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And when Yahweh your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal and they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, toward the going down of the sun, in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the oak of Moreh. For you are to cross over the Jordan, to go in to take possession of the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. And when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I am setting before you today. to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 657 of this podcast. Today is Monday, July 10th, 2023. That was Deuteronomy chapter 11. And oh, by the way, isn't it fun that there was a bit of news here recently, as in the last several weeks, that they had actually found the curses on Mount Gerizim. They found them. They found them buried just as it is written in Deuteronomy chapter 11. It would be great if they were able to find the blessings as well on the opposite mountain. But for now, we find that the curses are indeed where Deuteronomy chapter 11 says they would be buried as reminders, as monuments to this putting of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience before the people of Israel. And of course, this is important for us to distinguish in our minds that they were Israel, we are not Israel. While at the same time, if we get too clever about separating ourselves from Israel, distancing ourselves from Israel, we will miss the fact that God is still God. (laughs) However much we might want to say, that Israel is Israel and we're not Israel, we're America as Americans, there's no escaping the fact that God is God. His justice is still what it always has been. He hasn't become more just. He hasn't become 
less just, his mercy is still what it has been. He hasn't become more merciful. He hasn't become less merciful. His truth is still what it was. It hasn't become more true. It hasn't become less true. And so also, this relationship between obedience and blessings, between faith and love, that leads to and expresses itself in obedience and service to God, that has not changed. That hasn't gone away. The relationship between curses and a disregard for God, a apathy at best, but really more rightly a hatred, an animosity, an enmity with God that expresses itself in disobedience and rebellion and stubbornness, that has not changed. Fundamentally, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart and mind and soul of the believer, human nature hasn't changed. God's nature hasn't changed. And so what we should expect is this is not a proof that there is no rule, that you can say, ah, yes, Israel was God's people. And so therefore, we don't have to pay any attention, no attention at all, no need to pay any attention to what God told Israel because none of it applies to us today. No, that's not how that works, ladies and gentlemen. That's not how that works. That would be exceedingly foolish for us to conclude, especially when God says repeatedly again and again, part of why he has chosen and called Israel to be his people, to be his nation, is to show all of the other nations something about his character, his purposes, his promises. And if we get very selfish and very myopic and very individualistic in the way we interpret that, we'll say, it only applies to me. It only applies to the individual. It doesn't still apply to nations, how God formerly raised nations up and brought them low. Of course that still applies. Of course that's still how God operates. Now, we don't know which nations necessarily he's going to raise up and bring low or at what time, unless God tells us. And I believe he's capable of telling us, but you should be careful believing anybody who says he's told them. Unless you read it in the word, you kind of just have to wait and see, but you can also judge trees by the fruit that they bear. And you can also say, ooh, hey, wait a second. There's a correlation and a causation component here to how we're relating to God and his commands and his promises and how other nations have related to God. And what happened to them, we can also expect reasonably will be what happens to us if we are following in their footsteps. That's the way it works. If we abandon that, we have abandoned wisdom. We have abandoned goodness. We've given up on it. We have grown weary in doing what is good. And I think actually many Americans have grown weary in doing what is good. And that needs to stop. We need to repent of growing weary in doing what is good. We need to repent of being cynical. We need to repent of being cowards. We need to pursue courage and encourage one another. Fill one another with courage again, because without courage, none of the other virtues are able to express themselves. You have to have courage 
in order to be virtuous, especially when villains are going to take your virtue as a threat. If they see you being virtuous as threatening, well, then the more virtuous you are, the more angry they will become. And if you don't have courage, well, then you're not even going to get off the ground. Once you realize there's an animus, there's a hostility, there's a vindictiveness, there's a jealousy that comes out of the weeds, comes out of the woodwork when you are virtuous and evil men, wicked men don't like that, don't like that you're happy, they don't like that you're prosperous, they don't like that you're perhaps looking into things. If you don't have courage, then you're not going to be virtuous. And even actually, if you read Augustine, you read Augustine's way of framing the problem of evil. Evil is not self-existent. It's not some eternal force in the universe. Evil is a privation of the good. Evil is the turning away from a good purpose for a person, place, or thing and twisting it for not that good purpose. And to the extent that the good has been lessened and diminished and decreased or opposed, especially where the command of God has been written on our hearts and has been spoken very clearly in his word, that is what we call evil. And so what is actually happening when we make our virtues all private virtues and we say that's only your personal business and that's not a public concern, whether you're virtuous or you're vicious, that's not a public concern. What we are doing is we are depriving the good in the public. We are depriving the public of good. But that is to say we are participating in the public square becoming more evil. We are the other side of the coin. If we withhold the good that we are supposed to be investing, the talents that we're supposed to be investing and making a profit for the master with. And if you say, ah, but there's hostility. I say, you said, you said persecution was coming and will you hide from it? Will you hide from the potential of persecution and thereby guarantee that evil wins the day, that evil rules the roost? Will you hide from persecution all the while telling those who would be courageous, oh, we shouldn't do anything because people might get upset? Well, yeah, that's kind of a part of it when there's persecution. How often, <clears throat> question for you, how often does persecution rear its ugly head as a matter of the public acting out in the scriptures without there being strong negative emotion right alongside. Isn't it always the case when you see persecution of the prophets in the Old Testament or the disciples, the apostles, the saints in the New Testament, isn't it always the case that you see strong negative emotion accompanying? Isn't it always the case that there's always anger? There is an outburst of indignation. How dare you say that? How dare you do that? There is some strong emotion and a tantrum throwing. There's upset. That's the whole reason there's persecution in the first place. If every time you see that the other person is upset, you automatically retreat and you automatically internalize their upset and you take it as proof that you must have said something wrong, you must have done something wrong, then 
I guess you just keep on giving the people who get upset a reward every time they get upset. And thereby you incentivize them getting more and more and more upset to maintain control or some modicum of control over you and the situation and everybody else around them. You're actually the other side of the coin. You are part of the problem. When you enable bad behavior on the part of others, you reward it. Now, what I'm not talking about is any kind of a repudiation of calls to turn the other cheek. When it's appropriate, turn the other cheek. But that's not enabling. And the big idea with turning the other cheek is you are showing yourself to be blameless as you continue on in doing what is good. Turning the other cheek does not mean you stop doing the good thing that you were doing because this person just struck you or they're threatening to strike you or they insulted you because that's really what the slapping on the one cheek is about is it's an insult. It's not a mortal blow. And oh, by the way, that turning the other cheek business bears no relation whatsoever to the governing authority in Romans 13 who does not bear the sword for nothing. He doesn't bear that sword so that he will turn the other cheek anytime an evildoer slaps him or attacks him. That's not appropriate for the governing authority who is a minister of God to carry out wrath on evildoers. It's not appropriate for the governing authority who bears the sword for something to turn the other cheek. No, the governing authority is supposed to reward those who do good. He can't do that if he's been overtaken and destroyed by the evildoers who want to get him out of the way so they can get at the innocent people, so they can plunder and fleece those who are vulnerable, those who are naive. But so also here in Deuteronomy 11, notice again how much this is emphasized. When you take this land, when you inhabit the land, when these nations are driven out before you, when you're enjoying your new digs, remember remember, remember, to worship and serve only Yahweh, your God. Don't turn aside. Don't be deceived. Don't serve other gods. Don't worship other gods. In essence, don't compromise with the gods of the nations. Don't. God is very angry when his people compromise with other gods. And they say, oh, we want peace though. God has not told you to pursue that kind of peace where you compromise with the gods of the nations. He hasn't called you to that. And in some sense, that really is all that needs to be replied to the internationalists who have gone flirting with the gods of the nations out of a overzealous desire for world peace. You should be able to live at peace with your neighbors as much as depends on you without worshiping their gods, without giving cover to their sins, when they do what is evil, when they do what is wicked, you should be able to live peaceably with them. And if you can't, if you can't live at peace with those nations without flattering their religion, without flattering their morality or their lawless deeds, their wickedness, if you can't live at peace with them while also saying, nope, that's wrong, We cannot go with you on that. We cannot agree with that. We cannot affirm that. We cannot endorse that. If they would fight you on that basis alone, well, then that's just what it is. And that's what it's going to be, as a matter of fact. That's part of why the saints in the last days are hunted and persecuted, because the saints are the ones who say, you can't have peace with God 
on those terms ultimately, and we can't affirm what is going to stand between you and God because that would put us at enmity with God because that's what friendship with the world is. In a sense, that's all that needs to be said to the globalist ambitions of many. The internationalist scheme is friendship with the world is enmity with God. That's all that needs to be said about it. Friendship with the world is not, oh, by the way, running for local political office or going to a city council meeting, going to a legislative briefing, going to a school board meeting and speaking up. That's not the world. It's a very biblical, it's a very God-honoring thing to love your neighbor as you love yourself, regardless whether your neighbor is a Christian or not. It's a very biblical thing. It's a very consistently obedient thing for God's people to do, to be good citizens of whatever country they find themselves in. That's a very obedient thing to seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you, even if you're in exile, maybe especially if you're in exile. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And also, oh, by the way, you demonstrate your love for your neighbor when you are also interested in what is going to affect his ability to provide for and protect his household, his family, his person, his property. When you take an interest in that, you are loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Because after all, don't you have to take an interest in those things? Aren't you commanded to provide for the needs, men, provide for the needs of your family? Before you send your family to the church to ask for provision, to ask for food or clothing or shelter or what have you. You men are supposed to attend to the needs of your extended family and especially the members of your own household. And how can you love your neighbor as you love yourself if you're not interested in his ability, his capacity to do likewise for his family, his household? Something to think about. Stepping back from the heavy or maybe stepping into a different kind of heavy. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, an article published at theblaze.com just yesterday, just over the weekend, by Paul Saka over at theblaze.com, titled Archaeologists Unearth Giant Prehistoric Hand Axes, Scientists Baffled as to Why 300,000-Year-Old Tools Are So Large. So here's the story. Researchers from University College London discovered the giant hand axes in Ice Age sediments in an ancient river channel in the Medway Valley in southeastern England. The hand axes were found among 800 artifacts buried on a hillside in Frinesbury, Kent. The artifacts were found in the excavation site at Manor Farm that began in 2021. The ancient artifacts are believed to be from the Middle Pleistocene, which is to say they don't know. Right? They don't know. It's guesswork. They plug things into their framework, which is evolutionary and is godless. And so forgive them that as a young earth creationist, as somebody who believes Genesis is true in every respect, completely true, I would say maybe pre-flood, right? Maybe pre-flood before the Ice Age and that would only put it several thousand years, but not several hundred thousand. In any event, quote, we describe these tools as giants 
when they are over 22 centimeters long, and we have two in this size range. Senior archaeologist Letty Ingray of the University College London Institute of Archaeology said in a press release, Ingray said one of the hand axes is the, quote, longest ever found in Britain, end quote. Quote, these hand axes are so big it's difficult to imagine how they could have been easily held and used. Quote, perhaps they fulfilled a less practical or more symbolic function than other tools, a clear demonstration of strength and skill. Quote, generally we think of hand axes as cutting tools, like large knives with strong and sharp edges that would have been brilliant for butchering animals and cutting up meat. We're just not sure if the size of this one meant it had another function or was used in a different way. Giant hand axes like the one we found are real outliers, and it's no accident it was made this size. Whoever made it went to a lot of effort, firstly, to find a piece of good quality flint big enough to make a tool of this size, and then to carefully flake it and shape its long and finely worked tip, end quote. Now, why I bring this up, why I make mention of it is because in recent episodes, as we're going through the Pentateuch, we're nearly through the Pentateuch, we see all of these references. We saw them back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, right before God sends the flood. It says there were giants in the land in those days and also afterward. And here, as the people of Israel are about to go into the promised land, there are all these references to giants in the land. And in modern times, that gets dismissed, that gets poo-pooed, because again, it's all plugged into this presuppositional framework, which denies the supernatural. It denies the existence of God and the angels ultimately, and insists stubbornly that everything evolved gradually over a long, long period of time through natural processes. It's basically deism at best. Right? That's what you can say about Darwin's theory and how it has held sway in the mainstream of science and academia the past few hundred years. It's basically deism at best, but when it's not deism, it's atheism. And it's certainly, whether it's deism or it's atheism, it's a rejection of the authority of God's word. And so scientists, yes, they are baffled because their presuppositional framework doesn't have a category for actual giants having lived thousands of years ago. They don't have a category except mythology, except to say that was all made up. Those were just stories. Those were bedtime stories, campfire stories. Those were clever myths that societies developed because we project onto these peoples the dishonest politicking of Machiavelli and Saul Alinsky and others, we say it was all propaganda. It was all just made up stories to scare children into behaving or to scare people who were ruled into submitting to their rulers that you say, oh yes, he's descended from this or that demoni, this or that God, or this or that heroic figure. But what if, right? What if archaeology once again, is about to confirm and is in the process of confirming what the Bible tells us about our past, that there were giants in the land in those days and also afterward, that the giants are part of filling the earth with violence, 
that the giants maybe in some respect are related to this false worship, this worship of other gods, and that that partly explains why God is dispossessing the nations of Canaan and giving them over to Israel. What if, what if, what if it turned out all of it is true? It's true, all of it. What if? I believe, in fact, that is what we will find, and I believe that that's what we should start expecting to find, and we should be more surprised if we don't find it. So I'm not baffled. I look at this and I say, that's remarkable. That's amazing. If you have a giant axe and it seems like it would be unwieldy for a normal-sized person, which you assume has been the constant, I say the most logical explanation is this was not a normal person. This was not a normal-sized human being like you and I who was wielding this thing. It was actually a giant. A giant axe for a giant warrior like we read about in the Bible. But there's another story, another report from Paul Saka I'd like to talk with you about over at the blaze. This one, more contemporary, titled Body Cam Video Shows Police Officers Shooting Families Labrador Golden Retriever Mixed Dog, Ohio Community Demands Justice for Dixie, was published Saturday. So again, over the weekend, here's some reporting. And long and short of it, this cop has been put on administrative leave because it appears, or many are investigating and supposing that there is truth to the claim that he employed excessive force on this dog. As the dog was approaching him, he shot it once and then proceeded to continue shooting the dog as it tried to run for safety. The dog being shot in the street gathered the whole neighborhood in to observe and to see, and it was a traumatic thing for everybody. And was it necessary, right? Sometimes, yes, I'm sure it is necessary for law enforcement to shoot a dog that is hostile or may become aggressive. If it's not being aggressive right now, it may become aggressive. And in those cases, I say, you know, it was the owner's responsibility to have control over their animal. And if they have an aggressive animal, their animal should be put to death before it actually does injure somebody or kill somebody. Unless that dog is guarding your house, your property, and you're keeping it on your property in your house, then that's what you get, right? When your dog gets out, if it's being aggressive towards a member of law enforcement or a member of the public, that's what you get, right? You get your dog being disposed of to protect human life, and that's the way it should be. But, 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 another possibility exists that you have sometimes law enforcement having a bad day because they've just come off of a really, really rough call and maybe even a series of rough calls, and maybe they're going through some stuff in their personal life, and maybe they're just not a great person, but they've been given this badge, and here is an opportunity to take out their aggression and their frustration on some other creature. And maybe they snap sometimes, just like a dog can snap, and people in the general public can snap, so also somebody with a badge and a gun can snap, and we don't want to see that happen. But when it does happen, there has to be accountability, just like there has to be accountability when it's anyone else. And part of the reason I bring this up in relation to the archaeological news we were just talking about is in both kinds of cases, what is 
the instinct for the establishment folks. If you have erred, if you have made a mistake or you've done the wrong thing, the instinct is to cover it up or to excuse it or to justify it or to downplay it or to explain it away. The instinct is typically to say, I had to, right? Either, no, I didn't. I didn't do that thing. Or what I did was entirely correct and entirely justified, even if it wasn't, because now I'm afraid of the consequences. For instance, now my career might be over because my reputation will be forever tarnished by this thing. Now my career might be over. Whether we're talking about scientists or we're talking about law enforcement or anybody else, how much better would it be if we could trust, if we could assume that people were behaving themselves at all times and doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing? How much better would that be? Also, oh, by the way, would we even have law enforcement if we lived in such a world? I would say no. And probably many law enforcement uh, officers would be they would be pleased, right? Pleased as can be if we lived in that kind of a world where they didn't have to respond to the kinds of calls that they respond to. Maybe there are some days where they really enjoy their job. They enjoy the kinds of calls that they get where they're just helping somebody and they're told thank you and people are happy and they're smiling faces. But with scientists and with law enforcement and with everybody else, we live in a fallen world and we ourselves have a sinful nature that we inherit by virtue of Adam, in particular, having eaten that forbidden fruit and the whole race falling in the first Adam. The second Adam is who we want to be in, in order to be restored to God, in order to have even a prayer of doing the right thing. But the good news is, the good news is, in Christ, we can make sense of things and not just be baffled. We can do the right thing and have a reward for it. We can do the right thing for the right reasons and have a reward for it. And yet, until Christ returns or calls us home, we as saints need to know what to do with situations where it would appear the truth has not been told or it would appear justice has not been done. And how do we correct an error or a misdeed? How do we correct that or call others to correction? How do we do that? You know, this is something that actually came up at Biblical Training Group on Friday night. As a group, we were talking about whether Christians can lose their salvation. What are the relevant passages that have to do with eternal security on the one hand, or the idea that you can backslide out of being a Christian when at one point you were a Christian? And it's interesting, in letting the conversation be organic and go where it would. It's interesting to me that the conversation turned to how do we correct others when they are wayward? If it's a person who claims to be a Christian and they're sinning or they're saying things that aren't true, how do we correct them? And at one point, the conversation was, it seemed to me, building to, well, nobody likes to be corrected. And really, you know, we shouldn't just be going around correcting people all the time and you know, we, we shouldn't probably be so quick to correct. But then I posed the question. I said, but, you know, we are saying there is a time for correction, right? And maybe what do we mean by correction? Maybe that's a question we should ask right now. Because what was being described 
it seemed to me, was not really correction. It was just criticism. Is correction just criticism? Is it the job of the saints to just criticize those who are saying things that aren't true and doing things that are not good? Is that all the Christians are supposed to be doing when we're told to call others to repentance? I say no. Any more than my job as a parent is just to criticize my kids. But what is my job? My job is to correct. My job is to correct. I'm supposed to correct my children. And that means I don't just tell them, no, that's not good. No, that's not true. No, that's not right. No, you messed up. What I do is I say, hey, let's do this instead, right? No, okay, that's not good what you're doing, but I want you to do this instead in that kind of a situation. Moving forward, I want you to do this instead. That's correction. If they're saying something that's not true, I don't just say, no, that's false. No, that's false. No, that's false. No, that's false. Wrong again. Wrong again. Wrong again. What I say is, no, that's not quite correct. This is more correct. Or what about this and this and this? Let me explain how this works or how that goes together or the sequence of events. Or let me give you some additional information. That's correction. And if that's correction, and if this officer involved in the perhaps excessive force incident in Ohio, if that officer did not do the correct thing, is it possible, maybe just maybe, we need to do more than just criticize? Is it possible that maybe just maybe we need to look at the state of dependence that many communities across the country have fallen into and been coaxed into? And to be honest, uh, many communities across the U.S., much of the U.S., in fact, the whole country, if the left gets their way, has been told you need to be dependent on your government. And if you try to be independent and if you try to do things for yourself without permission, that might be a fine, that might be jail time, that might be a scandal. So just call the experts, trust the experts. But that's the opposite of what Thessalonians says in many regards. And when I say that's the opposite, I don't mean you don't ever call the experts. You don't ever trust those who are wise. You don't ever ask people who are knowledgeable. You don't ever call for the authorities to step in and intervene. But what I mean is you don't always, or else you're not doing what Paul says in Thessalonians. You're not obeying the admonition to aspire to live a quiet life, working with your hands, minding your own affairs so that you can be dependent on no one and walk properly before outsiders and have a good conscience and all the rest. If you believe the radical left's claim and also many of the donor class establishment Republicans claim that you need a government you can trust, that you can obey, that you can just do whatever they tell you to do, that you can depend on for everything. If you listen to that, if you internalize that, then you will not do what Paul admonished. You just won't. It's an either or. It is an either or. When it's all or nothing, it's either or. And even when it comes to being dependent on no one, you can be dependent on no one. You can handle it yourself. You can take care of it yourself. When that's the culture, when that's the attitude of the community, that's the expectation, then I think you have less of a chance of, one, being dependent on people who maybe don't have such good character, they're not so trustworthy, but they do have a badge and they do have a gun. And on the other hand, you have less of a likelihood of burning out people 
who did go into the line of work, maybe for good reasons, but it's too much, right? Everybody has a limit. It's too much when they're being asked to take care of everything for everybody all the time and nobody does anything for themselves. Nobody takes any responsibility. Nobody is self-sufficient in any way, shape, or form. They're just passive, selfish babies. That's not so good. And that is an invitation to predatory behavior on the part of bad men, evil men. And on the other hand, it's a recipe for burnout, exhaustion, frustration, and yes, ultimately, temptation to be abusive with power on the part of those who maybe we need to put more consideration into their having a sinful nature when we hire and retain. For our next item, though, speaking of people you trust, people we should be careful about to vet and pay attention to the character of and the track record of Ron DeSantis was interviewed by Maria Bartiromo, who I like, by the way. I like Maria Bartiromo. I follow her on LinkedIn, and she usually does good interviews and good reporting, in my opinion, from what I've seen anyways. I don't like Fox News generally. I don't like Fox Business generally, but she does a good job. But Ron DeSantis being interviewed by Maria Bartiromo, he was asked about some reporting here recently that basically his campaign has stalled out. There was so much excitement. There was so much energy. And what now, right? Maybe they just have withered on the vine already and fizzled. And what do you say to that, Ron DeSantis? I'm going to play for you. Cut one. And you can take a listen for yourself. Here it is. Yeah, and you've done a great job pushing back against woke. We know that. But I'm wondering what's going on with your campaign. There was a lot of optimism about you running for president earlier in the year. But here's this weekend's headline from the Politico playbook. Failure to launch Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' campaign <laughs> to topple Donald Trump has stalled. We are way behind, <laughs> says a top DeSantis PAC official, sounding the alarm. What happened? <laughs> Oh, Maria, these are narratives. The media does not want me to be the nominee. I think that's very, very clear. Why? Because they know I'll beat Biden. But even more importantly, they know I will actually deliver on all these things. We will stop the invasion at the border. We'll take on the drug cartels. We'll curtail the administrative state. We'll get spending under control. We'll do all the things that they don't want uh, to see done. And so they're going to continue doing uh, the type of narrative. I can tell you, uh, we understand this is a state by state process. Uh, we've had incredible support um, in the early states building an organization, signing up the key people that you need to be able to compete in a place like Iowa. We just launched our mama's movement. My wife was in Iowa with Governor Kim Reynolds launching that. Parents and particularly moms. I think are going to be the secret weapon, both in this primary and in the general election. Uh, nobody has been a better champion for those folks uh, than me. And I would just also point out, you know, my reelection in Florida, we had the greatest victory that any Republican governor candidate in the history of the state had. And yet a few months before the election, I had media saying that somehow my reelection campaign was stalling, that we weren't mm. doing anything. And so we're doing what it takes to win. 
It's not a national primary. That's not how these things are going. Uh, it's really on the ground in those key states. You got to have the organization. You got to have do it. So that's what we focused on. And oh, by the way, we just announced last week uh, better fundraising than any non-incumbent has ever had. Uh, if you look at what was reported, it was about $150 million, and that hasn't even been deployed yet. So we've got a long way to go. I'm looking forward to being able to participate uh, in the debates. Uh, but this is not something that um, you know I ever expected to just snap fingers and all of a sudden you know you win seven months before anyone happens. You got to earn it. And you got to yeah. work, and it requires a lot of toil and tears and sweat, and we're going to do that. Uh, great answer. Great answer, in my opinion, to the question, has your campaign stalled from Ron DeSantis? No, it hasn't. It hasn't, but some people want that to be the case. They're wish casting a stall on the Ron DeSantis campaign for the presidency, for the nomination of the Republican Party to run for the presidency we should say. But before that, there's lots of good material. There is a 13 minute and 37 second long embedded video in the Daily Wire reporting on this that you can check out. It'll be in the description for this podcast episode. Go click it. Watch the full interview with Maria Bartiromo for the rest of his remarks on several issues pertaining to the presidency and the campaign for 2024. But just notice the elephant in the room that a lot of folks, if you're going to make real substantive changes, a lot of folks who have been profiting off of the status quo, and that's part of how it became the status quo in the first place, and they don't want it going anywhere. A lot of folks want to not have anything changed. They don't want the apple cart upset because there's a great deal of money to be made and there's a great deal of power to be lost if the government is shrunk and if the scope of government is narrowed to what is supposed to actually be the job of government. And part of the reason I bring this up right after talking about the potential excessive use of force incident in Ohio is just like you can have a individual cop who has a bad day and has this power, has this badge, has this gun and shoots somebody's dog because he just came from a bad call. So also all of these bureaucracies are filled with individual men and women who are fallible, who if you give them a badge and a gun may have a bad day. And the more of them there are and the more they're expected to do and the more of a sense of dependency individual citizens have in relation to those bureaucracies and those bureaucrats, those fallible men and women, the more likely it is you're going to have situations like somebody's family dog being shot in the streets. Whatever their equivalent is, it won't always be somebody's dog. It'll be somebody's opportunity. It'll be somebody's business idea. It'll be somebody's innovation with regards to education. It'll be somebody's invention. It'll be somebody's patent. It'll be somebody's attempt at providing journalism or engaging in the public discourse. If you have more dependence on government, you are also going to incentivize those who are in government protecting what is their business or what they think is their business, which is to continue on being a bureaucrat, working up the ranks, working up the chain, holding on to power, expanding their power, expanding their budgets, expanding their mandate. But when government expands, individual liberty shrinks. That's what you have to understand. 
when the government expands, the rest of the economy shrinks because they don't have money unless they print it, thereby devaluing the value of every one of your dollars, all of your material possessions, therefore are going to be harder to get replaced if you need to replace them, harder to upgrade if you need to upgrade them, harder to expand and build onto if you want to do that, if you think it would be in the best interest of your family or your friends or your community or your employees, etc. That will be harder if they're printing money to support a bureaucratic state that is growing larger and larger, that is bloating beyond proportions we've ever seen in this country. But then the flip side is too, if they're taxing, right? If they're taxing, they're extracting wealth from the economy. They're taking money away from you. And in a way, they're giving a vote of no confidence that you as a private citizen are able to figure things out. If you endorse that, if you quietly, passively allow that to be the case and to proceed apace, you are in some sense resigning yourself to not being dependent on no one, like Paul says. You're resigning yourself to not having your own affairs that you would mind them. You're resigning yourself to not working really with your hands because now you've got to keep up with an endless litany of demands for what is the public interest. When it's all the collective, you don't have your own private affairs. And that's the problem with socialism. That's the problem with communism. That's the problem with legal plunder, as Bastiat says. But let's move on. Let's talk a bit more about the current president. Let's get back to the present. Joe Biden is in a little bit of hot water for comments made with Farid Zakaria during an interview on CNN where he was asked about sending cluster munitions, cluster bombs to Ukraine. And I'll play for you here, cut to, this is President Biden giving a very candid answer, perhaps too candid answer, as to the reasons for this decision that is controversial, not just with Republicans and conservatives and the usual suspects, but also with Democrats and also with our allies around the world. Here it is, cut to, take a listen. What made you uh, change your mind and decide to give them these weapons? Two things, Fred, and it was a very difficult decision on my part. Uh, and by the way, I discussed this with our allies, discussed this with our friends up on the Hill. And uh, we're in a situation where Ukraine continues to be brutally attacked across the board by munitions, by these cluster munitions that are, have dud rates that are very, very low, I mean, very high that are dangerous to civilians, number one. Number two, uh, the Ukrainians are running out of ammunition. Uh, the ammunition, that is, they call them 155 millimeter weapons. This is a, this is a war relating to munitions and uh, the running out of those, that ammunition, and we're low on it. And so what I finally did, took the recommendation of the Defense Department to not permanently, but to allow for in this transition period where we get more 155 weapons, these shells for the Ukrainians, to provide them with a something that has a very low dud rate. It's about one, I think it's 150, which is the least likely to be blowing. And it's not used in civilian areas. They're trying to get through those trenches and those then stop those tanks from rolling. And so uh, but it was not an easy decision, and it's not, we're not signatories to that, that agreement, but I am 
It took me a while to be convinced to do it. But the main thing is they either have the weapons to stop the Russians now from their, keep them from stopping the Ukrainian offensive through these areas, or uh, they don't. Okay, yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. They either have the weapons to stop the Russians or they don't. Uh, fair enough, I suppose. What does he say in there? He says, for all the world to hear, the U.S. is low on 150 millimeter shells. Ukraine is low and the U.S. is low. That's a problem, ladies and gentlemen. That's a real problem. One, that it's true. Two, that we're just going to tell everybody, hey, we're low on ammunition. What are we doing about it? Besides sending cluster bombs to Ukraine and anything else we've got, I guess, uh, what are we doing about it? And also, by the way, speaking of China, which the Ukraine business is uh, a proxy for, they need Russia to win, as now Ferguson recently pointed out in his interview with Uncommon Knowledge. They need Russia to win. We need Ukraine to win. That's the big idea. This is Cold War II. Lots of wargaming about what if we step in, what if we intervene militarily and we protect and defend Taiwan against a Chinese invasion. A lot of wargaming has said we run out of ammunition very quickly because we're not producing it. We don't have large enough stockpiles. It would require very large stockpiles. We don't have large enough stockpiles like we should. And that's a problem, right? That's a problem for actually succeeding in your objective if a war breaks out, if you don't have the munitions, if you don't have the weapons, or if you do have the weapons, but you can't actually reload them, that's a problem. And what are we doing about it? You know, it's one thing to send things to Ukraine. It's quite another if we're not producing them and if we're not focused on the capacity. And this is something I talk about every so often, but I need to talk about it more probably. One of the things I've learned from playing strategy games, and Civilization VI has been a favorite of mine for a long time. I've got over 3,000 hours logged with Civ VI. Its predecessor, Civilization V, Sid Meier's Civilization V. Also, I have over 3,000 hours logged with. One of the things you have to understand about being able to prosecute a defensive war or an offensive war, an aggressive war, either way, it's an economy that makes that possible. If you don't have a strong economy, it doesn't matter how good your tech is. If you don't have the ability to put troops in the field and support them and maintain them and keep them armed and send in reinforcements, if you don't have the capacity to do that, you can't defend yourself or your allies for that matter. And you also can't attack your enemy. You can't do a counteroffensive with hopes and prayers and putting the Ukrainian flag in somebody's profile picture. That's not going to cut it. That's not going to do it. But that is to say, we're in a very dangerous spot if economically we are undermined because the same policies that FDR pursued after Hoover are now being pursued by Biden after Trump. If the same big government spending, let's have the bureaucratic state grow larger and larger and larger. Let's have the government take on more and more of the responsibility and really the privilege of making individual decisions for private citizens, private individuals, private men and women in the country, private businesses, private institutions. When the government becomes the 
solution to every problem and then goes and creates problems in some cases just to be the solution so that you have something to run for re-election on, what you get is where we're at right now. And it makes us less safe. It makes our allies less safe when we don't have the production capacity because we haven't been willing to decouple from China. COVID, whether you believe that it was a hostile act or an oops, COVID and how countries under the sway of China and China itself related to the U.S. and our allies with regards to the supply chain, with regards to trade, with regards to information, being candid, being transparent, that should have been all we needed to know to tell us that we need to bring manufacturing back to the U.S., Stop encouraging kids, like Ron DeSantis said in the interview with Maria Bartiromo, stop encouraging kids to go and get useless degrees that are expensive and that make them debt slaves. Stop encouraging kids to go and get useless degrees and to become activists who just grow the bureaucratic state ever larger. Start encouraging young people to pursue the trades. And so I am. I'm encouraging my sons, for instance, to Learn how to be an electrician. Learn how to be an HVAC technician. Learn how to be an automation technician. Learn what I do, and I can help you. I can avail you of my network of professionals across the U.S. and up into Canada. Do what I do. Learn how to do what I do. And if you want to do something else, it's at least a fallback. You know, Young women get told that all the time, and I think it's a terrible mistake. I think that's the wrong kind of advice. I think that's setting them up for failure very often. When we tell young women, you need to go and get years and years of expensive schooling just in case you know it doesn't work out. You, yeah, you want to get married and be a wife and mother, but just in case it doesn't work out, go and get $100,000 in debt going to some private school or even a state college increasingly can be very expensive. Go and get that degree and you can fall back on it. Well, we should be telling young men, go and get some training in a trade And if you want to pursue something artistic, if you want to be into photography or writing or graphic design or what have you, do that, right? Do that in your off time until it takes off. If it takes off and it's hugely successful and self-sustaining and supportive, great, fantastic. But have something you can do that is definitely going to be in demand. And also, oh, by the way, if we bring manufacturing back, It'll be needed. And we're going to need to bring manufacturing back. I watched an excellent interview, like I said, with Niall Ferguson on the question of China and how should we think about our relationship with China right now? Are we in Cold War II? And he says, yeah, absolutely. That's what Henry Kissinger is saying. And he's right. We are in Cold War II, regardless of whether the people in Washington are willing to fully admit that yet. We are. And as such, we need to understand that Xi Jinping is staying in power longer than he's supposed to on the promise that he's going to take Taiwan back. He has to do that in a limited amount of time. And it's likely, in some people's minds, in some analysts' minds, it's likely to happen in the next year or two that this kicks off into a major world war, World War III if they try it and if we try to stop them. And even our trying to prevent them or encircle them or contain them is likely to produce that effect if it's done the wrong way and if they have a sense that now's the time to strike before we're ready. 
And so it's a dangerous game we're playing, but all the more dangerous if we don't have the production capacity, if we're not focused on that, if we're not building the production capacity sufficient to maintain a war effort, if we don't have a strong enough economy, if we don't have capable men and women who know what they're about and they are looking to the fundamentals of the economy and they're allowed to look to the fundamentals of the economy. This is another thing that Ron DeSantis is exactly right about. He's exactly right when he says we need to be increasing and facilitating, incentivizing the increase in domestic energy production. Here in the U.S., we have oil, we have gas, we have coal. We need to kick it open, the spigot. Kick it open and produce, 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 because you have to have cheap, abundant, reliable energy in order to support manufacturing, in order to transport manufactured goods, in order to transport the raw materials to manufacture goods. You have to have cheap and abundant energy. Everything takes energy. That's how economies work. But Joe Biden here is not willing to say maybe that we're in Cold War II, but he is willing to tell the whole world that we're running out of 155 millimeter shells. Oof, dangerous. We need to wake up. This is serious. This is deadly serious. And we're playing with people who play the long game and who think very asymmetrically, and we need to start acting like it. Some folks who are not being serious include panelists over at MSNBC discussing, again, going back to Ron DeSantis, his wife, Casey DeSantis. I'll play for you, cut three here, some audio, and then I have some thoughts. Yeah, um, Jonathan, look, Casey DeSantis is a fairly compelling political figure in Florida and now nationally. For many, she's the brighter side to Florida's angry governor. For others, she's become America's Karen. And I think that's the ultimate disconnect here with a campaign that needs to embrace more constituencies to get to the White House. Look, she is a more effective messenger than Ron DeSantis. But if all she is doing is amplifying the wrong message, she's actually clarifying Ron DeSantis's weaknesses. And so this this ideology, the DeSantis doctrine, if you will, that our culture wars are the most pressing moments and we are going to invent these culture wars to terrify voters, that's simply not a message that resonates. So as I like to say, it doesn't matter if it's presented in heels or boots, the DeSantis doctrine is a losing one. We're going to learn that the more Casey DeSantis gets out there. <laughs> Tara, um, I think David's beaten you um, in terms of taking my breath away during a segment. But real quickly, because I do want to move on to my yeah. pens for a hot second. Uh, America's Karen, David Jolly. Well, I called Ooh, her boy. I called her this, you know, Serena Waterford wannabe needs to cut it out. We see you. So <laughs> there's there's all kinds of names for her. She needs to stop trying to measure the great drapes in the White House and think that she's some kind of Jackie O reincarnate. I mean, Casey DeSantis. <laughs> Keep an eye on her, though. She's a wily figure. Ooh, wow. Keep an eye on her. Keep an eye on her. She's a wily one. Uh, first off, let's start with former rep David Jolly, the MSNBC tag under him as he's speaking during this short segment is that he's a former Republican congressman from Florida. It looks like his backdrop is maybe some forested area in Florida, and it looks like big open windows. It's probably a big, beautiful house. If the camera were 
to do a panorama, you would probably see that it's an expensive house. He's sharply dressed. He's got his hair cut close, a little bit of gray on the sides. And here he is being the kind of Republican that actual conservatives are quite tired of. Here he is reserving his spicy language for Ron DeSantis and Casey DeSantis when, I'm sorry, former Republican congressman didn't get back into Congress for some reason. They're actually winning re-election and you're a former Republican. And I hope it continues to be that case. This is what you get when the donor class decides who is running. You get guys like this who would gladly go over to MSNBC and trash conservatives who understand the connection between culture and politics and economics, actually. The donor class would be much wiser, and I don't mean wise in their own eyes, they would be much wiser to grasp and to appreciate and to invest themselves in the connection between our theology and our culture, our culture and our politics. Our politics, they understand, is upstream of their economic reality. That's why they donate so often, because they're hoping to get outcomes that are favorable to their business interests. But they don't accept, they won't admit in too many cases, the connection between culture and the political situation. These are not invented cultural issues, invented culture wars. When drag queen story hour is coming to a church or a public school or a public library near you, when drag events are made with the express purpose of sexualizing children, strip teases and erotic dances and naked men on bikes or on floats simulating sex acts on each other, when that's being demanded as children's entertainment or else you're a bigot or else we're going to threaten your life or else we're going to destroy your business or else we're going to practice lawfare and drag you into the courts, drag you through the courts and whether we win or we lose the case against you, you will have lost precious time, precious energy, precious investment opportunities that you're too busy litigating, you're too busy fighting it in court to pursue. This guy, David Jolly, reminds me of the failed Democrat candidate from Tennessee who I am still not able to access Twitter because I contradicted, because I stood up to him. Chris Jolly Hale maybe is a relation to David Hawley from Florida. I don't know. But Chris Jolly Hale saying Marsha Blackburn needed to be removed and replaced by the people of Tennessee because she had dared to ask Katanji Brown Jackson, can you tell me what a woman is? And I said, with all due respect at Chris Jolly Hale, what a retarded thing to say. And I'm still, a year and a half later, I'm still not able to to access my Twitter account. A 12-hour suspension is now going on a year and a half. I guess it's not quite to a year and a half yet, but March 26th was the anniversary. And so we're coming up on a year and a half. 
And this guy wants to say these are invented culture wars. When certain states are passing laws which will take children away from their parents, if their parents find out that the public schools have been grooming them for gender transition and for homosexuality behind the scenes privately, covertly, and the parents find out and they object, when the DOJ is putting parents on terrorist watch lists because they show up angry, opposed to boys using the girls' locker room and bathroom and showers with their daughters, that's not Republicans and conservatives like Ron DeSantis and Cassie DeSantis inventing culture war. That's not Republicans and conservatives like me inventing culture war. That's us standing up for our children, protecting our children, or trying to. This guy is obviously not interested in protecting children. He thinks that's an invented culture war. I say, with Republicans like these, who needs Democrats? For that matter, consider the case of North Dakota's governor, Doug Burgum, doing an interview with NBC News, where he said a very similar thing, according to reporting over at the Daily Wire. And you can watch the full interview if you want to in the link I'll provide in the description for this podcast episode. The audio is a bit quiet. I don't know what's up with that, but here's a quote. I believe that the president of the United States has got a defined set of things they're supposed to work on, and it's not every culture war topic. As president, things that you're supposed to focus on, things like the economy, like energy policy, which is completely tied to national security, and part of national security is the border. What is that, right? What is that? Culture, also. When you start talking about securing the border with Mexico, you start getting into talking about the culture of the United States of America what the impact is on the culture of the United States, not just what the impact is on the economy or the crime rate, because the economic implications are downstream of the cultural artifacts, the cultural effects. What is it going to do to your crime rate? Well, again, that's a factor of what is the cultural value on obeying the laws? What is the theological position of a drug cartel member who's smuggling drugs across the border or smuggling people, for that matter, engaged in human trafficking, what is the theological position of that person? It's going to be upstream of whether they get involved in smuggling drugs or smuggling people, trafficking human beings very clearly. And that isn't to say that it's the government's purview to offer up a theological test for people coming across the border. But it is to say it's entirely relevant to look at the cultural question and to look at what's happening culturally as a symptom and also as a cause of the economic situation. If you say the culture is downstream of the economic situation, that's a rather backwards way to look at it. If you want to talk about energy policy, I'm all for it. And Doug Burgum in North Dakota has been friendly to the development of domestic energy supplies. That's great. Also, too, as governor, he has signed laws that were passed by North Dakota's very Republican legislature banning so-called gender-affirming care for minors, nearly, totally, signing a near-total ban on abortion in North Dakota, according to Wikipedia, banning the teaching of critical race theory in K-12 through public schools in the state of North Dakota, 
back in 2021, some would say the signing of those pieces of legislation is just culture war, but it's not. If little kids are being taught to be Marxist activists and climate change hysterians, it will affect what they are voting for, what they are demanding, how they are engaged, whether they're engaged in the economy. If kids are being taught to get abortions after fooling around and then to become homosexuals or transgendered, that's going to affect the economy. That's upstream of the economy. It's not just downstream. And yes, maybe sometimes these are causes and effects, but his own record signing legislation in the state of North Dakota either should cause us to wonder what he means by culture war, culture war issues, or we should wonder if he only signed those pieces of legislation because overwhelmingly the people of North Dakota were demanding it. And it would have looked bad for his now run for president if he had vetoed those things. He would have been given no chance even to continue on as governor, really. But beyond that, he wouldn't be running for president right now and have a chance if he had vetoed those things. But this guy, he is wealthy from starting a tech company, and that's great. Selling it to Microsoft for something like a billion dollars, I think it was. That's great. That's great that you made a successful company attractive to a larger successful company and you sold Great Plains software for $1.1 billion. That's great. But again, I say this kind of rhetoric, taking pot shots at the likes of Ron DeSantis for getting involved in culture wars, it's either disingenuous or your participation to this point has been disingenuous and forced. And again, either way, the donor class needs to stop being the deciding factor on how American values are talked about, protected, defended, conserved. In a word, conservatism needs to stop being defined by the wealthiest donors and who they will put their money behind and who they are friends with. Conservatism needs to be holistic if it's going to actually conserve anything. Otherwise, it's just slowing the decline, managing the decline insofar as you have to have children who are healthy, well-adjusted, growing up in households where their father is involved, he's present, preferably in a part of town where there's a lower crime rate and there's a decent facility, there's a decent home for these children to be safe in and healthy in and learn and grow. If you don't have that, then maybe you have some money being made by your company or your friends and their companies in the short term, in the immediate term. But very quickly, that turns into let things fall apart. And if we have to, we'll just hop on a plane and move ourselves to some other part of the world that hasn't been ruined. If you don't pay attention to, if you don't attend to how your laws are affecting the culture or how the culture is going to shape future political realities, then you're not being serious. You're not taking it seriously and you're not thinking about future generations like you ought to. And you're not the kind of person 
who should be entrusted with the governorship or the legislature or the courts of this country or the presidency. Another quote from Burgum, anytime you're the CEO, if you're spending time on something that can be done, you know, in a sales office out on the front lines dealing with customers, you're not doing your job. You've got to be looking to the future. We need a president that's focused on the challenges that we're being faced with as a nation, not not a president that's going to decide whether a book is in the right section or not in a library in a small town somewhere in America, end quote. Okay, now let's just stop right there. This is a criticism of Ron DeSantis. This is a sideways shot at Ron DeSantis for weighing in on what kinds of books peddling gender theory with explicit illustrations and graphic narrative and dialogue, what kinds of books promoting every kind of sexual depravity are being put in front of kids and that kids are being encouraged to read, even required to read in some places. Ron DeSantis gets criticism from the donor class in this country for saying, yeah, get those books out of here. As many American parents want to protect their kids from those kinds of materials, those pornographic materials, all wrapped up in what's called comprehensive sex education, Doug Burgum is joining with the donor class to take a shot at Ron DeSantis in hopes, I'm sure, of further ingratiating himself to other millionaires and billionaires like himself who don't want to get into culture wars. They just want to pay attention to what their interests are, financial interests, economic interests. Let the riffraff in some sales office deal with that. Uh, No, I'm sorry. Predatory behavior, sexual predators normalizing the sexualization of children is the purview of government. That is. And if that's not what you think is your business as the governor of a state or potentially the president of the United States, then you don't have my vote. I'm not going to vote for you because you're wrong. You're wrong. And if you're empowered, you're going to neglect protecting children or at least protecting parents as parents protect their children. That is a bare minimum. When Ron DeSantis talks about dismantling the bureaucratic state that is targeting conservative American moms and dads as they try to provide for their families and protect their families, he gets my vote. He has my 100% and unapologetic support. If Doug Burgum wants to side with the donor class and say, let's not get into all that because we're more interested in quarterly earning reports, then you lost me, Doug Burgum. You lost me. Speaking of, nation's largest teachers union recommends sexually explicit gender queer in their summer reading list. The NEA, oh, by the way, which with the help of the KKK, lobbied for more than a decade for the establishment of a federal department of education in the first place. The NEA is now saying kids should read gender queer over the summer. Some have said, by the way, that the NEA is like the KKK still, just with summers off. But the book was featured in their Great Summer Reads for Educators. Among 11 books, also included was White Fragility, insisting that white Americans use anger, shame, and guilt to avoid taking responsibility for racial inequality. This is Marxism. This is Marxist-Leninist cultural Marxism. This is 
Mao's Cultural Revolution. That's what the NEA is helping to push. They were progressive from the start. They were of the left from the start. And I'm sorry, what was that about? Made up cultural wars that conservatives are trying to get distracted by? What was that again from the donor class about how we need to not get into all that because all we need is a strong economy? That's all the president needs to focus on. That's all governors need to focus on is a strong economy. Come come again, please. What was What was that? Yeah. Yeah, this is what we're trying to protect our kids from. It's not made up. It's not our imagination. Either the Doug Burgum types don't know that this is an issue or they don't care that it's an issue because they think everything is downstream of economic conditions. They think for us, all other interests need to be secondary to financial interests that will maintain their status quo and the status quo of their friends and their donors. No, no, unacceptable. I don't accept that. With all due respect, how about you guys listen to the parents? Listen to the moms and dads as we're telling you what we need, what our children will need in order to be able to maintain this republic, build up this republic. How about you put us first, put our children first, really, truly, and then we'll take care of the economy. It's not the president's job, by the way, to create jobs or destroy jobs. It's not the president's job to manage the economy. He's supposed to be serving as the chief executive officer. He's supposed to be enforcing the laws, and the laws should not be accepted as what the left says they are. Legal plunder, as Frederick Bastiat says, should not be what the donor class is allowed to conserve. That's their idea of conservative values is if it's only political, if it's only fiscal, and it's often not even fiscal, if it's only political and economic, that's the social imaginary that has gotten us to this point where we're in so much trouble. That's the line of the left when they say we have to provide the welfare state for single moms and incentivize fatherless homes, which then also make far more likely that children are going to grow up and end up in prison or engaging in violent crimes, or they're going to be involved with minors. They're going to have contact with a minor, which is to say they themselves will become predatory towards those who are younger. Typically, I think that's because they're trying to get back in touch with their own childhood that they feel like they missed out on, and they didn't have a father in the home to protect them. So it might be a pattern of abuse that's just repeating abused people then justifying, normalizing, downplaying the abuse that they suffered, perpetrate it because they've convinced themselves it's no big deal what happened to me, then they do it to somebody else. Now that person has to normalize it. Now the whole country is being told you must normalize this. You must rationalize this. You must downplay it. You must legalize it. Pretty soon, stand back while the experts, the so-called settled science, tries to tell you your children are not your children. Your children are actually everybody's children because it takes a village to raise a child. No, 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 no. Now, enough with the thinly veiled eugenics where the social Darwinists manage the flyover country conservative types like so many cattle. Enough of that. Stop it. You want to do the economy a favor? Put that to death, that idea that we are all so many cattle for you to 
practice herd management with. And it's just a debate whether you're going to be Republican or Democrat as you manage the herd. No, 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 no. And you might say, well, what's the or else, right? I'll tell you. I'll tell you what the or else is by playing a ad that Ron DeSantis is getting quite a lot of flack from the left for. He's going to get still more flack from the donor class candidates for. Listen to this one minute, 13 seconds from Ron DeSantis on these things. I will do everything in my power to protect our LGBTQ citizens. If Caitlyn Jenner were to walk into Trump Tower and want to use the bathroom, you would be fine with her using any bathroom she chooses. That is correct. In the future, can transgender women compete in this universe? Yes. Make America great again. produced some of the harshest, most draconian laws that literally threaten trans existence. Congratulations, Ron DeSantis. Mission accomplished. You win. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was not so much... Ron DeSantis, that was that was Donald Trump. And a number of talking heads, commentators, pundits, talking about culture war issues, right? Invented culture war issues. What you couldn't hear were the various screen snips of headlines and magazine covers giving Ron DeSantis either the blame, if you hate what he's been doing, or the credit, if you're like me and you approve of what he's been doing for shutting down drag events that target children, protecting girls and women in public restrooms, locker rooms, showers. What you couldn't hear in those screen snips, but you can see it for yourself if you follow the link in the description for this podcast episode to the New York Post article about Peaky Blinders, the show, getting very upset with a couple of small clips of imagery to create positive association with Ron DeSantis. They don't like that, that he or somebody on his campaign or somebody who supports him was using small clips, very small clips from Peaky Blinders to portray Ron DeSantis as something like a badass gangster. They don't like that, but you can watch the full campaign ad for yourself and you'll see these headlines headline after headline where action is being taken leadership is in the right direction on the so-called made up culture war issues we literally have pride parades in this country for years by the admission of our corporate news media as they're trying to downplay it for years chanting in the streets we're coming for your children pride parades yeah, what are you hoping to do with our children? What do you mean by we're coming for your children? Of course we know what they mean. 
What they mean is they're coming to sexualize our children. They're coming to groom, molest, and rape our children. That's what they're coming for. That's what we're up against. And the donor class thinks that's a distraction from what's really important, which is maintaining the status quo long enough for them to secure their wealth, either to get more of it or at least to not lose what they have right now. They want to protect what they supposedly have worked so hard for. And in some cases, maybe that's true. They've worked very hard and they have earned their wealth. But here's the problem. When it's legal plunder that has become the status quo, that wealth in so many cases is extracted from the economy or it's watered down in the bank accounts and savings accounts and 401ks of individual Americans looking to retire or looking to send their kids to get a good education, hopefully in a trade school. Legal plunder means that either through taxation or the printing of money, these American moms and dads, grandpas and grandmas, are less able to provide for themselves and their families. They're less able to protect their families and themselves. I don't mind at all, personally, if some kind of a positive association is going to be created by the Ron DeSantis campaign between Ron DeSantis and traditional masculinity, even to poke fun at the gender theorists and to say, yeah, how about let's do the giga chat thing? Just to let you know how little we are deterred by your ranting and raving about toxic masculinity, even as you're trying to convince little boys and little girls to androgenize themselves. If the Ron DeSantis folks want to associate his image, his persona with the Giga Chad, Sigma male tropes and have a little bit of fun with it, that's fine with me. And you heard Trump in his own words saying, we're going to do everything we can to protect our LGBTQ folks. But what is that, right? When they say you have to protect us by using preferred pronouns or by being quiet as we come for your children, wait a second, this is looking like an either or. Either we're protecting the LGBTQ movement, either we're protecting cultural revolution, Mao's cultural revolution, American style, or we're protecting our children. I'm going to go with, let's protect our children. I'm going to go with Ron and Casey DeSantis saying, we're going to protect our children. We're going to fight for our children. And that's my motivation for participating in the economy, donor class. I've told manager after manager for years, including managers up in North Dakota, this job, whatever I'm doing right now to earn a paycheck, this job is a means to an end. I want to serve my God with the time that I'm here and with the resources that you compensate me with for working here. I want to provide for and protect my wife and my children. Anytime a job or an opportunity to get a better job would mean that I'm not providing for my wife and kids as well. I'm not protecting them holistically. Well, then it's time for me to look for a better job somewhere else. And if across the country, opportunity is only there for those who affirm homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, those who want to normalize pedophilia, those who want to normalize grooming of children, those who want to take children from their parents and put their parents on terrorist watch lists for objecting. If the only opportunity is for those folks, because the donor class cut deals behind the scenes, 
to protect their nest egg. Again, I say, the donor class, you lost me. You lost me just like employers over the years have lost me when they said, oh, the bottom line is more important than whether you're able to provide for your family, whether we're compensating you as we said we would for your services, for your time, for your attention. The donor class has lost my confidence entirely. If they want to regain it, they need to get behind candidates like Ron DeSantis. They need to get behind initiatives and projects like those where parents are trying to protect their kids from predators and mountebanks. For further proof that these are not invented culture wars, these are not things that Ron and Casey DeSantis are making up because they want to win the presidency in 2024. For further proof that these are not issues that I'm making up or I'm imagining as a father of eight with a ninth on the way, seven sons and one daughter, an eighth son due November, homeschooling father, author of, and this is why we homeschool, oil and gas automation professional. I'm in an automation engineering department of all things, working up from operations because I got into the oil and gas boom in eastern Montana and especially western North Dakota back in 2012. I'm not imagining these culture war issues and I didn't start the fight. But for further proof that this is not my imagination and it's not just some political trick by the so-called Karen Casey DeSantis, who I think is a lovely woman, beautiful woman, not a Karen at all, very well-spoken, beautiful woman. I think she would be as good or better as compared with Jackie O. Check out Peter Heck over at Not The Bee, his July 10th piece. Leave the Kids Alone must become a cross-cultural demand of the sane. He writes, a month or so ago, I wrote about the new acronym I'm pushing, LTKA. Leave the kids alone. I'm an LTKA activist, and the number of things that concern those of us who champion this movement continues to grow. Don't get me wrong, Christians were warning that this assault on the innocence of young people was always part of the left's agenda. You don't champion someone like Alfred Kinsey and not have wicked intent when it comes to young people. And here we have an embedded tweet from Wilfred Riley. It's worth noting, he says, that the reason pouncing conservative bros quote unquote, keep describing Kinsey, John Money, and many other fathers of modern sex and gender theory as weirdo pervs is that they were. Data in the famous Kinsey figure came from raped infants. Kinsey got all this data, so-called, for the science, from a gay pedophile who kept extensive diaries describing all the little boys he raped, by the way. And here we have a screenshot with a table Examples of multiple orgasms in pre-adolescent males. Age, five months. Number of orgasms, three. Time involved, question, question mark. 11 months. Age, 10 orgasms in one hour. 11 months, 14 orgasms in 38 minutes. Two years, seven orgasms in nine minutes. Two and a half years, 11 orgasms in nine minutes. Two and a half years, 11 orgasms in one hour, five minutes. Four years, Four orgasms in two minutes. Four years, 17 orgasms in 10 hours. Four years, 26 orgasms in 24 hours. This is taken from Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, the book by Kinsey. 
Peter Heck continues, like I said, you don't revere a guy like that. You don't build a monument and institute at Indiana University. You don't formulate your entire queer ideology off of his philosophies and methodologies and not have child endangering tendencies at your core. And it's a thorough corruption that we're talking about. At this point, everyone paying attention knows about the aggressive push for LGBT, etc., sex curriculum in elementary schools. Faux family-friendly corporations like the Walt Disney Company even go to bat for exposing children to sexual content in the classroom, willing to do immense damage to their brand for the cause. Viral video accounts like Libs of TikTok have done yeoman's work in amplifying the perverted aims of more than just a handful of queer or queer-friendly educators, but the damage extends well beyond manipulations of the mind. Think of all the politicians aligned on the left who have adopted the Orwellian language of the transgender cult demanding legislation to safeguard, quote, gender-affirming care, end quote, for kids. To be clear, gender-affirming care is a euphemism for sexual mutilation and chemical castration. It is debatable that a grown adult should be considered mentally sound if they seek out such treatment, but to subject a minor to that kind of horror is an abominable form of child abuse that puts the West on par with some of the most primitive indigenous cultures that mutilated their offspring to appease false gods. Look at this gut-wrenching testimony about what we're doing to our kids. And here I'll correct Peter Heck with all due respect. We are not doing that to our kids, but there are some very committed people who want to do this to our kids, and we have to stop them. And we have to stop them from doing it to other people's kids as well. Christopher F. Rufo tweets out, quote, This is haunting. A doctor at a major children's hospital explains how puberty blockers shut down a child's hypothalamus, which controls emotions, sexuality, and the aesthetic sense. Quote, To shut down that system is to shut down what makes us human. End quote. Peter Heck continues. Then come the nightmare stories of shattered innocence, like this jarring story out of Boston. Here we have an Instagram post from the typical liberal, quote, four kids aged five to 10 were rescued from a squalid transgender safe space, quote unquote, apartment in South Boston. The apartment was filled with drugs, sex toys, and the corpse of a black trans person. Peter Heck continues, This example of grotesque debauchery is anything but anecdotal, hiding beneath a veneer of fun entertainment, pride parades occurring around the country regularly, see children being willfully exposed to graphic nudity and simulated sex acts. News reports and videos surfaced from the Seattle parade where grown men were naked in front of several kids whose parents had placed them in the front row to observe the spectacle. Newsweek covered some of the outrage. Here's the quote from Newsweek, by the way. I'm all for pride, but this is not that. Why were they not arrested? William Scott Lowe tweeted. Like I said, I believe in LGBTQ rights, but being naked in front of kids is a crime. I believe it is called indecent exposure, Chase Lanford wrote. It is not an acceptable standard for anyone else. Why should it be acceptable for him to do simply because he is a homosexual, end quote. Now, let me just pause right there. We'll come back to the Peter Heck article in just a moment, but let's pause right there and understand how this all started back when we inhabited so-called neutral world with regards to the Christian religion. The claim was Christianity is just one among many 
religions in the world, which is to say Yahweh is just one among many gods of the nations, we'll tolerate Christians, but we're not going to give any special consideration to Christian morality. And oh, by the way, gay couples just want equal rights to homosexual couples. Gay men and homosexual women, lesbian women, they just want equal rights, equal recognition to straight men, straight women, heterosexual men and women. That's all we want. And oh, you Christians, how dare you suggest that that is Pentor's box. It was neutral world in which ministry models like Tim Keller's told Christians to not get political, to not get partisan, to not pick a side, to criticize all sides equally because that's what the secular city wants to hear before they're going to hear the gospel from you. That's the gospel that they want to hear from you, essentially, in other words. That's the gospel that the secular city wants the Christians to believe, is that it's all the same who you vote for. And the Bible doesn't speak clearly on political questions and political debates. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God means thou shalt not judge, full stop. Because if you judge in the present, right now, you're being a Pharisee, you're being a hypocrite, you're being the kind of folks that the secular city dwellers don't want to talk with about coming to church. It was in neutral world that we were told these folks just want the rights to live a normal life like normal people. Although what folks like me were saying when we still lived in neutral world is it won't be normal. They want to abolish the idea of normal. In fact, they're at war with the idea of normal according to God, according to our Christian forefathers, according to the laws of this land. That's why they have to change the laws. And that's why they're trying so very hard to shut up the conservative, theologically outspoken Christians. That's why they're trying so hard to shut us up because we would say it is written and they don't want to hear about what's written. In fact, they want things like the Queen James Bible to tell them that was all just your imagination, that God said thou shalt not. Did God really say, hath God said thou shalt not commit adultery or divorce your wife for any other reason besides adultery or get remarried after a divorce, ladies, except in the case of adultery, as in, except in the case where you have committed adultery, because it would have to be you, ladies, according to the Bible. We don't want to talk about any of that. No, 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 no. Hath God said? Well, apparently our answer was maybe not, because now we live in negative world and we rewarded a whole lot of tantrums coast to coast. And the conservative, outspoken Christians, the theological conservatives, in all too many cases, were shouted down successfully. And now what you have is no one coming as the second to examine the first to state his case in too many cases. And if the second comes along to examine the first to state his case, and the first to state his case says we can mutilate the bodies of little boys and girls, we can rape little boys and girls soon enough, then the second who comes to examine is engaging in made-up culture wars, because the donor class has long ago given up on the culture. They don't care about the culture. Why do you think they live in these big gated communities or out in the wilderness as far from 
most others except those of their own class as they can possibly afford to because they gave up on the culture, because they gave up on this country. And now they're just trying to get all they can, can all they get, sit on the can, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die because in all too many cases, they're godless. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And so that's why they're only interested in the economy. And they think the economy is the be all end all. And they think the whole point of politics is to facilitate their economic interests. I'll play for you one last clip for this podcast episode. And I know I'm going long. And I told my wife I was going to try and make these episodes shorter, but here we are. I'm going to play one more audio clip for you in this episode so that you know, if you haven't heard it to this point, you know I'm not making it up. What's being chanted in the streets at these pride parades, here it is. Cut five. Take a listen. Okay. All right. Uh, Did you hear that? Did, Did you hear that in New York City? The city where Tim Keller, oh, by the way, planted his church, built his brand, the church from which he launched his training program for pastors and church planters and missionaries, which has been so praised, the church from which he grew his brand to the point that it meant something when he helped to co-found the Gospel Coalition. This is that city where people are marching in the streets, chanting, we're here, we're queer, we're coming for your children. Now tell me again that it doesn't matter how I vote if Ron DeSantis is saying we're shutting down drag shows that are targeting children. We're shutting down pride parades that are targeting children. We're shutting out gender theory being taught to kids, comprehensive sex education being taught to kids in our public schools in the state of Florida. We're going to remove books that contain graphic depictions, either in image form or in narrative form, of sex acts, some violent sex acts, but in many cases, homosexual acts, bisexual acts, yes, even heterosexual acts that are designed to sexualize children in the public libraries and in the public schools. We're going to get those out of there. And what was the response from the donor class here in recent months? What is it in recent weeks? What is it in recent days? What will it continue to be in the days and weeks and months to come? That's all made up culture war stuff that we shouldn't be focused on. We should be focused on the economy. You know what? I love being focused on the economy. In fact, I was just talking with my wife last night as she was doing pre-reading for this coming homeschool year. She was doing pre-reading on Thomas Sowell's basic economics, because our two oldest sons are going to be reading some Thomas Sowell very shortly. I love economics. I'm very interested in economics. I have to be interested in economics because that's what is required if I'm going to provide for my family, if I'm going to protect my wife and my children. But the economic reality is downstream of the political reality in this country. The political reality is downstream of the cultural reality. The cultural reality is downstream of the theological reality, which is to say when you hear people half naked, 
dressed in grotesque ways, marching in a major American city, many major American cities, saying, we're queer, we're here, we're coming for your children. When you see that and it looks evil, it sounds evil, that's because it is evil. Don't think that Satan is absent this moment. Don't think the demons are just sitting on the sidelines watching all of this play out. This is demonic. This is satanic. The Target scandal that cost that corporation so much money, and what was I saying? Again, about the donor class and their interests, that Target scandal wherein they were putting pride displays at the front of their stores and they were featuring designs by a certain trans woman that is a biological woman. She was born a woman. She was born a female. She's got two X chromosomes, but she's taken hormone drugs. She's undergone surgery. Now she grows a beard and dresses like a man, cuts her hair short. This designer that Target had partnered with was putting out pieces of art, so-called pieces of propaganda, really, religious symbols, saying that Satan respects pronouns. Yeah, yeah, I'll bet he does. Anything to help the war effort, right? There are people in this country who want to destroy every last vestige of Christianity, not just in your town, in your county, in your state, in this country, across the globe. They think God is the villain of the story. Satan is the hero. And these kinds of people write books sometimes where they explain their philosophy. They explain their inspiration. Saul Alinsky, for instance, dedicated Rules for Radicals to Satan. Now, please direct me to the conservative thought leader who dedicates his seminal work to Satan. Please. And then I'll listen to you explain more about the moral equivalence, and it doesn't really matter how Christians vote or how they affiliate themselves politically. Please, I'll listen, you speak, you explain to me where in the works of Edmund Burke or Thomas Sowell we see a dedication of any work to Lucifer, the first revolutionary, as we do with Saul Alinsky's work. By all means, you go find it, you let me know, and then let's talk about how we should all be centrists politically, how it doesn't really matter whether you vote with the radical left or you want to conserve laws which protect children from being molested, from being abused, from being raped, from being murdered. Do you really, really truly believe when you read passages like what I read at the top of this episode from Deuteronomy chapter 11, do you really truly believe that it's all the same to God, that you can do whatever you please and call that love for Yahweh your God? Deuteronomy 11 verse 1, you shall therefore love Yahweh your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments Always. And if you say, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm not under the law. I say, you're a Christian if you're not lawless. If you're lawless, then you probably don't know Jesus, actually. You're not under the law, but if you have no love for the Lord's commands, then maybe you don't have any love for his promises either. Maybe you just believe that God exists. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
The man who does not provide for the needs of his own household, especially, but also his extended family, is worse than an infidel, worse than an unbeliever, worse than a non-Christian. It would be better if you just didn't make any claims to faith than if you claim to be a Christian and you neglect the provision and protection of your family. So no, with all due respect to the centrist Republicans, the moderate Republicans, the donor class, so-called pseudo-conservatives, with all due respect, no, it's not all the same. Whether we focus exclusively on the economy, whether we vote at all, it's not all the same. If we support somebody who's only going to focus on the economy, it's not all the same. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. More to come in the days, weeks, and months ahead. Lord willing, I will keep bringing you updates and commentary. Hit subscribe if you haven't yet. Send a link to this podcast episode or any other in my catalog that might be interesting to you. Send a link to somebody you know who's been thinking about these things, who might be encouraged to know that they're not the only one trying to think through these things, even if you don't always agree with me. It's not the end of the world. I don't want everybody to always agree with me. That's a scary place for me to be, and it's not a good place for you to be either. We have to be thinking about these things. We have to be having the mind of Christ, taking every thought captive, demolishing strongholds. That's an active mandate from the Lord, and it's a great one. It's a great one that he equips us and empowers us and enables us to. He doesn't just call us to it. He makes us capable of doing it by the power of his word and by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. But again, like I said, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. been listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.